Hello, everyone. My name is Steve Ruggiero. It's great to get to share tonight, but before I do, I wanted to recognize one of our own. I know most of us will be watching the NFC and AFC Championship games tomorrow, but I want to recognize Indy Hauser for her birthday tomorrow. Go have a Starbucks on us. And I wanted to say hello and congratulations to Dr. Nancy Brown, who is in Florida right now, getting her PhD. Congratulations, Nancy. And hello to Doug and Chrissy Fasile, who are also in Florida right now. And I think I saw a picture of Doug swimming. Swimming. Today. In Florida. It's, I don't, I mean, good on you, brother. Good on you. I wish I was there. So, uh, speaking of sharing, if you were here uh, a couple of weeks ago at our sharing service, you may remember Pastor David coming up and talking about how much he loves this time of year. He said he loves January. He loves it for the goal setting, for the blank slate of possibilities that lie ahead. He said he, he actually goes and buys his day planner, you know, for the year, and he gets excited about filling it in, his schedule and everything, Right? I'm like, go ahead, brother. Now, especially with him going to school, it's going to fill up pretty quickly. So if you want to get with him, you need to get on his calendar ASAP. In the same way, I'm, I also look forward to, to January. And it's why at the beginning of every year, I like to pull up with a couple guys and talk about some things we want to accomplish this year. You know, what are some of our goals? What, what, what do you want to do this year? What am I hoping for? And it's kind of a natural conversation because January is kind of signals new beginnings. If you didn't know, January, the name January, comes from Janus, J-A-N-U-S. Janus was a Roman god of beginnings and endings. You'll see behind me that there's a picture of a Janus statue at the Vatican Museum in Rome. You'll see he's depicted with two faces, one that looks back at the past and another one that looks forward into the future. You know, many of us do the same thing in January, don't we? We reflect back, looking at the year, some of our decisions, good and bad, and we project forward some of the things we want to accomplish. And some of us in here even set resolutions. Resolutions. Now, I know many of you have a love-hate relationship with resolutions, but to me, a resolution is nothing more than a spoken desire. It's communicating something in our lives that we wish was better, an area or areas that you and I wish were better. Things like to be healthier, to save a little bit of money. Maybe this year I want to I be a better spouse. I want to spend more time with my family. I want to read the Bible more. And some people even have resolutions that I want to have a better attitude this year. But unfortunately, you know and I know that many of those people before the end of the month will have given up on getting better. In fact, research says that only 8% of those people who set resolutions actually complete them. And did you know that there's an actual day when most resolutions are abandoned? They did studies. There's a day when most people give up on the resolution. You know when it is? Yesterday. Yesterday. Today is resolution D-Day plus one. 17 days. In 17 days, people who wanted something better for their life said, I just can't go anymore. I I'm done. 
I just can't. That got me thinking. That got me thinking. If people are giving up in 17 days on maybe eating better, spending a little bit more time with family, maybe, maybe saving a little bit of money, if they're giving up on that in 17 days, what do you think they're thinking or what are they doing when they hear Jesus say in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect. Be perfect as I am perfect. Perfection. Are you kidding me? I can't even say no to ice cream. I have a gym in my garage and a treadmill in my house, and it takes me a millisecond to find something else to do. Be perfect. You know, and there are probably many reasons, but, but some of the reasons why I think is as soon as we hear this word perfection, it provokes anxiety in some of us. Now, there are some people in here, and you know who you are. You're type 1 Enneagrams, right? The perfectionist. you got a type 1 wing, too, right here. I get it. I understand. And we'll pursue perfection in every area of our life unless we deem perfection is unattainable, at which point we just leave it all alone. We dismiss it completely. Because if I can't be perfect, why bother? Why bother? Now, don't, don't get me started on the Facebook Photoshop perfectionist. You know the one who removes wrinkles and whitens teeth in their pictures? But I, I can almost, you, you can almost understand it. You almost get it, you know, because it can seem like at times today that perfection is expected. Doesn't this feel like it sometimes? Like, like it's pressing in on us. Like I have to be a perfect husband. I got to be a perfect wife. I better be a perfect parent who keeps a perfect home, and I better be a perfect Christian. i got to be a perfect leader. I better be a perfect fill-in-the-blank. I love that Pastor Fred said last week, he said, at City Life, we're not looking for perfection. We're humans. When he said it, I was sitting over there. I even wrote it down on the next step card. I was like, that's so funny. I'm talking about that next week. Good on you, Pastor Fred. But when we face these expectations of perfection, any slip-up or any failure causes us to default right back to old behavior and just neglect any changes that we've made and we begin to think, what's the use? And then here comes January 1st again. And Pastor David, what are your dreams this year? Right? It happens. So going into 2020... We're two weeks in. I want to challenge us tonight in our short time together to change our mindset, to get away from a mindset of perfection and instead focus on a direction, a direction. This year, an overarching goal that says, you know, this year, I know I won't be perfect, but can I get going in the right direction to think to speak and to act more like Jesus this year than last. Can I this year? Can I this year? Can, can I think, speak, and act more like Jesus today than yesterday? More this moment than just a moment ago. I love that 
uh, Chris last week in worship was talking about, you know, what Jesus looks like and Pastor Fred after him. And they were using words like, you know, joyful and righteous and, and merciful and gentle. And that, that's the likeness that we're talking about. That's what I want us to start thinking about as we're going into 2020. So if I'm saying tonight that our goal tonight is not perfection, but a direction, it begs the question to you and to me. What direction are we headed in? Every fall, my family goes on a couple-day fall trip. A couple days somewhere we go. This year we went to an Airbnb about three and a half hours away in the Shenandoah Mountains. My wife and I were in one vehicle. Tyler, Jessica, and my grandkids were in another. We were following them. And uh, my son and his wife, they couldn't make it. She wasn't feeling well. So, you know, we're, we're about an hour out. And we said, well, you know, we're getting close. And it's up in the mountains. We better put the address in our GPS to make sure we make the right turn and everything. So we do that. And, and Tyler's in front of us. And I'm behind him. And as soon as my wife does it, about five minutes in later, her phone starts blowing up, telling us that we need to take a left. We need to take the next exit. You need, you're going the wrong, you need to take this route. So I'm like, whoa, really? So I called Tyler and said, hey, man, we're supposed to take the next exit. He's like, not me. My, my phone's fine. Lori's telling me he doesn't know where he's going. You need to get the, listen to the phone, Steve. I got the address. We need to take the next exit. So I pull up to Jesse, and I'm, I'm looking at her. I'm like, we got to go. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, we got to go. Her mom's phone. And, and finally, I said, I'm just taking too much heat. And I took the next exit, cut somebody off. We get off the exit. As soon as we get the exit, GPS is like, hey, go left here. I go left. It says, hey, when you get to this, take it right here. So I go right. I go 100 yards. I take a left. And I'm driving all through this town, right? <laughs> I'm all over the place in this town. I'm thinking, what, is, what are we doing? So finally, about 15 minutes, I pull over and say, let me put the address in my phone. So I put the address on my phone. It tells me, go half a mile, take, get on the interstate. I was like, so I do that. I get on the interstate. And, and you know when you're following somebody and you're traveling together, I know you're going together, but make no mistake, it's a race. It's a race. I don't care if we're going to the same place. I need to pull in first. That's all I'm saying, right? Well, Dude had a 30-minute jump on me now, right? So I'm real happy. I'm like, I'm 20 minutes. What? I call him, what mile mark are you at? I'm like, oh, man, I'm 20, 30 minutes behind this guy. So I'm speeding up trying to catch up to him, and my wife's messing with her phone. She says, huh. I was like, what? What's huh? She said, I guess I accidentally hit avoid all interstates. I'm like, <laughs> mystery solved. Here's my point. We can know tonight where we want to go. And we can even have the right direction. Right? We can have the right directions. But we can take a wrong exit. We can take the wrong exit. And when we do, we can find ourselves doing a lot of driving around in circles and lost. See, many of you are familiar with Andy Stanley's book, Principle of the Path. In it, Andy says, direction, not intention, determines your destination. See, that's why I love It's City Life. We talk about the 12 pathways. Because these pathways are like the flow of traffic. They take us someplace. They take us where we want to go. And we combine the power of the Holy Spirit with your and my desire to act, think, and speak like Jesus, inherent in the context of these pathways, we will be moving in the right direction. 
It sounds great. It's so good. And it works. But here's where it gets, here's where it gets tricky. You and I have a destination where we want to go. We want to look more like Jesus. We want to think, speak, and act like him. So we're going, and we're, we know where we're going. We're going the right way. And yet, studies show that nine out of ten of us going in the right direction are going to go like this. We're going to get off track. We know, we all, nobody plans to go off track. And yet nine out of ten people go off track. We detour. We get distracted. That tells me that 90% of us are not experiencing everything that Jesus has for us. 90%. I'm not talking about eternity. Once you make a vow of devotion to Christ, heaven is promised. That's grace. That's his blood. Thank you, Jesus. But I'm talking about the tangible transformation of our thinking, speaking, and acting here. Something causes you and I to go this way, to get off track. I want to talk tonight about some of those things. Here's our core verses. Listen to them, even if you've heard them before. Proverbs 4, 25, 27 says this. Let your eyes, your and my eyes, look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Listen, do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. That's the Old Testament telling you, telling me with wisdom, keep your eyes straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Then the New Testament, author of Hebrews comes in, connects it, and says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It only makes sense then that the reason why nine out of ten people go off track is because we're looking and focusing on something else. So tonight I want to talk about those something else, just three of them that cause us to turn right or left. I want us to give careful thought to the past for our feet tonight. That's what I want to do. So there's no surprises. So we know what's ahead. Amen? Andy Stanley said in his book, Louder Than Words, if we aren't intentionally cautious, we may end up unintentionally corralled by the very vices we've always condemned. I think it's why the Apostle Paul said, wake up, wake up, O sleeper. Be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. He says, wake up. Confession time. You don't have to answer. Only the courageous ones can. Has anyone ever nodded off when driving? There we go. Who are? <laughs> I know. Where's she? Shanika's not here. But I had a great, Lori and I had a great conversation with Shanika. She said she does. If you drive up next to Shanika, you see her on the road, 64 Jefferson, you pull up, and there's a pillow resting against the window, and she's cruising, right? Get past her. I mean, I know for myself, not so much now, but when I was in my 20s, we lived in South Carolina, and we used to make these 10-hour drives up to Pittsburgh from South Carolina, and in the winter, and it was cold outside, and the heat's kicking, and I'm, and I'm sitting, and we're driving, Six hours into the trip, 
that warm air is on, you know. I look over, my wife, so beautiful, sleeping, right? I look in the back, here's my babies, each one in a car seat. Man, I'm a blessed man. I love my... Right? And then, rumble strips. Who knows rumble strips, right? It's like, oh my gosh. And you, you get back on the road, you're all sweaty, you're like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, I look over and she just kind of, right? I look in the back, the kids are sleeping, right? I'm like, I almost just killed my whole family. I, I almost wrote, drove us right over a West Virginia mountain, right? We, the four of us almost met Jesus. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Lord. I'm so fortunate. I love you. Right? I'll tell you what, if you have a hard time understanding what it looks like, it looks a little bit like this. You're tired. You get weird when you get tired. Let's just find a motel. I don't want you dozing off. I'm not tired. Are you kidding? Go another hundred miles. Come on. No problem. Stay at home at night. Family Truckster. Clark W. Griswold and the Family Truckster. So if you learn anything tonight, wake up. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. All right, so tonight I want to talk about a couple things. A couple things that we have a tendency to leave the direction that we want to go. It pulls us over to the right or it takes us to the left and, and it either slows down our journey to Jesus or makes it a lot more complicated. I read about some of these in Pastor Kerry, I think he pronounced his name, Newhoff's book called Didn't See It Coming. And uh, he has seven obstacles. I pulled out three, and I'm going to talk a little bit about those um, because I think they're probably the most common. But what I like about this book is uh, the tagline says this, these are some of the greatest challenges that... No one ever expects, and yet everyone experiences. No one expects it. No one's going to sign up for it, but every one of us experience it. 
Amen? So let's talk about them going into 2020. The first detour that draws us away from our destination of Jesus, folks, is compromise. It's compromise. All of us, at one point or another, feel this potential disconnect between who we are and who we know we should be. The tension is highlighted by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 when he says, the sinful nature, you have one, I have one. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is the opposite of what the Spirit wants. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. Here's what I believe. I believe compromise is that sinful nature's way of giving space to sin to relieve that tension. And it feels like it when we do that, that it works, albeit temporarily. Because the subtle choices that you and I make, the rationalizing, the half-truths, the justifications, continue to widen the gap between who we are and who we want to be. In Matthew Syed's book, Black Box Thinking, he said, self-justification is insidious. Lying to oneself destroys the very possibility of learning and growing. And what makes self-justification, the rationalizing, the, just, ju- the justifications, the excuses, what makes it so insidious and so destructive is, listen, our compromise creates a pattern of permissiveness until eventually you and I, honestly, we're doing things we never, ever thought we would do and never wanted to. We frequently say at base camp, the men's ministry of City Life, that nobody wakes up in the morning and says, today is the day I want to ruin my reputation. We don't do that. We don't grab David's day planner and go August 1st, I want to make a decision. I want to do something or say something that's inappropriate so I get reprimanded and, and embarrassed. And it happens. It happens every day. And while there are many reasons why, I, I think one of the top reasons why, and Newhoff mentions it as well, is because we have a tendency as a society to place more emphasis on competence, what we do, instead of character, who we are. And while it's true, the crowd will be impressed and they'll be intrigued by your competency. Your family, your friends, and those closest to you will be influenced by your character. So how do we measure that? How do we measure our character? Right? There are multiple tests out there to measure our competence. There's all these competency assessment tests from 360-degree feedbacks to oral and written exams. But what about character? How do I evaluate my character? I can just tell you it's good, but how do I know? I want to have that discussion with myself tonight, and I want us all to have it. So there's no surprises. I don't drift off the exit. So I'm going to give you four questions to ask yourself. That's all. Just four questions to think about. The first one is, is there a growing gap between my public life and my private life? Is there a difference between your words and your actions? Do you talk about grace and then snap at your wife and kids? Are you rude to people in the store and on the road, but, but talk about the forgiveness of Jesus at church? What do you want like at work? Do people at work even know you? Would they be surprised to know you go to church? Who are you when you're alone? Who are you when you're alone? 
Who are you when you're with your family? And who are you when you're in public? We have to ask ourselves this question because if there's a gap there, there's a problem there. And the enemy enters right there. We don't want that to happen 2020. If we're going to continue to think, speak, and act like Jesus, we're going to narrow that gap. That's where the word integrity comes from, doesn't it? The word integrous, and it means whole. It doesn't mean fragmented. I'm a different person here from there. Number two, I got to ask myself, am I hiding things? Here's the thing about compromise, folks. It eventually leads to cover-up. Compromise leads to cover-up. Am I hiding things? Am I keeping money stashed away just in case the relationship doesn't work? Do I keep my phone with me all the time just in case I get an errant text? Do I delete my browser history regularly? Am I having a conversation with someone at work? I'm a, I'm a married person. Am I having a conversation with someone at work of the opposite sex that's of a personal nature and deep personal nature only because they understand me more? Am I hiding anything or is my life open? Does everybody have access to my social media account, my family, my wife? Or am I like, oh, work made me change my password on my phone. Sorry about that. Number three, have I settled for a lower standard? I like this one. This is a great question. Have I settled for a lower standard? And here's why. Am I giving my best effort to the things that I've said are most important to me? Because if I keep saying that these things are the most important thing in my life, but I'm not putting any effort towards it, there's, a, there's incongruence between what I'm saying and what I'm doing. Listen, when, folks, there's a certain point in our compromise when we, start, when we stop apologizing and we start justifying. One of my favorites in this is, hey, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Comparison leads to compromise. We don't compare ourselves with others. We compare them with Jesus. Amen? Lastly, number four, let's ask ourselves tonight, is life really all about me? We're going to talk about character. Is life really all about me? When I say life, I mean my desires, my wants, my needs, my hobbies, my work. Does it take precedence over everyone else in my life? Look, when we, when we start compromising on our character, we eventually craft a life that is almost entirely self-centered. That's not, that's not the way towards Jesus. So how do we get back on track? What do we do to get back going in the right direction? I believe we look for an on-ramp that says steadfast faith. An on-ramp of steadfast faith. Faith, that's strange. Why? Here's why. All the little compromises that you and I make. Listen, they're internally bartered and negotiated. I want you to picture in your mind a conference table with your sinful nature on one side and your spirit on the other. When those hard decisions come up, there's a negotiation going on right there. There's a negotiation. When we compromise, that sinful nature has chosen in that moment that this is better than that. That this choice is better than what God is offering. We have to hold on to what the psalmist says in 107.9, that you alone, Lord, satisfy the thirsty and the hungry. You alone. When I make hard decisions, when I make hard decisions to serve others more than myself, to check my ego, to nurture humility, to, just to serve others, I, I know I'm making a decision in this moment that I 
think and I believe that I'm making it and I know for Jesus and on the other end there's going to be a better me and I'm going to be closer to him. I have to believe in that moment that he's true. Now, we would love if we all made decisions out of love for Jesus all the time, but sometimes when, it, when the rubber meets the road, you just got to, we have to make a hard decision, and we have to choose him over ourselves. And when we do that, listen, when we do that, we will strengthen our character, and what I love is we're going to build a new faith history, a new faith history. Jordan Peterson wrote a book called 12 Rules for Life. He said, faith is being willing to learn from what you don't know yet. Faith that will sacrifice the current self for the self that can be. As we enter 2020, let's begin tonight by saying, I want to develop and strengthen steadfast faith within me. When I gave a portion of this message at base camp towards the end of the year, we talked about these obstacles, and uh, Brother Dave Kamornik took this stuff, took, the, took it home, and he looked at every obstacle and went and got the antonym, the opposite of every one of these obstacles, and said, here's all the opposites, the antonyms for every one of these obstacles. Because I believe that the enemy wants us to think this is the only way. No, there's a bunch of ways. There's other choices. I'm going to put them online with the notes, and you can look at them. So don't believe the lie. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, Peter says, by Jesus' divine power, God has given us everything we need, everything to live a godly life. May we choose in 2020 to get out of the camp of compromise, make our way onto the exit of steadfast faith, and continue moving in the direction of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Second exit that we got to look out for. Maybe we've avoided that compromise exit. There's another cynicism. Cynicism strikes directly at our hearts. It strikes at our hearts and it changes how we see other people. We begin to see other people that they're acting purely out of selfish desires. It changes how we see people. Here's, in, here's what's interesting about cynics. Cynics, most of them, they were once optimists. They were optimists who suffered a painful experience. They were an optimist who was vulnerable and got hurt. They gave their life to a job and they were let go. They fell in love, gave their heart to somebody, and they were betrayed. And as a result of these experiences, we start, we start grouping people together unfairly. And we say, you know what? No one can be trusted anymore. It isn't even worth getting involved. And we hear this often from people who go to visit churches, don't we? They go to church, they try, and somebody says something sideways to them. And now, in their mind, all churches, they, they just... All churches, all people do there is judge people. So they never come back. C cynicism. Cynicism. Let me share this. It doesn't get any easier as you get older. It doesn't. That's why age and cynicism are frequent companions. Solomon in, in Ecclesiastes 1.8 said, hey, more knowledge, more grief. Listen. I get it. Life isn't easy. It's hard. It's really hard sometimes. Is it wonderful? Yes. Magic? 
magical. God, you're amazing, beautiful, the wonder. Yes, it is all of that. But it's hard too. There's some tough times. There's some tough times. And we're going to get our feelings hurt. We're going to get our feelings hurt. And because of these hurts, you and I have a tendency to project the past onto the future. See, cynicism grows because we're trying to protect ourselves from future hurt. But what starts as self-preservation, it morphs into something a lot more insidious. We become a bit jaded. We believe we're a little wiser, but as we look closer, what we see is not so much wisdom as it is fear, hurt, and disappointment. The very things that harden our heart. And as a result, you and I, we start picking up patterns in people, in places, patterns that aren't there, and reasons that aren't true. It's what, it's what psychologists call confirmation bias, because everything we see from that point forward merely confirms our cynical perception, until ultimately, our suspicion, it evolves into anger and bitterness, and we stop trusting, hoping, and believing. My friends, when we see life through cynical eyes, we inevitably begin to just generalize and judge. And generalizations, applying one situation to all situations, it's like a virus. It infects everything. It infects everything. Here's my point. When we close our heart to people, we close our heart to God. When we close our heart to people, we close our heart to God. We end up trusting less and doubting more until eventually, listen, that distrust, it spills over into our relationship with God, and eventually we get to a point that even he and his promises can't be trusted. If you're here tonight and you would recognize that there might be a part, see, that's the thing about cynicism. It, it can be categorized. If, if there's a part of your heart tonight that is cynical and maybe it's hardened, I want to say this. Cynics are not born. They're made. They're made. And Satan loves cynics. Howard Hendricks said this, discouragement, cynicism, it's the anesthetic, the numbing agent that the devil uses on people just before he reaches in and carves out their heart. Listen, there's a way back. There's a way back out of the city of cynicism. There's a way going to get back going in the right direction towards Jesus. But let me tell you, it's an on-ramp, but it's an on-ramp for the brave. It's the on-ramp for the brave, and that on-ramp is called supernatural hope. Supernatural hope. We did a series a couple years ago at City Life about hope, and one of the things we said is hope is not just an emotion that we feel, rather, but it is, it's a state that we create in our life. It's something you and I intentionally build into our life. I define hope as forward-facing confidence in the sovereignty of God. 
forward-facing confidence in the sovereignty of God that Hebrews 6.9 tells me hope is an anchor for the soul. I believe that hope anchors us in the sea. If we're in cynicism, it keeps us from sinking. It keeps us from sinking in the sea of cynicism. It helps us change our perspective where we begin to see people not just for who they are, but who they can be. Why, Steve, does it have to be supernatural? Why are you saying it's supernatural hope? Because hope, my friends, is like forgiveness. It can't be fabricated. It can't be fabricated. We can't fake hope any more than we can fake forgiveness. We can't fake it. It has to come from him. Since we can't just create it ourselves, we have to open ourselves and be willing. Tonight, all I'm saying is, are you willing if there's if, if there's cynicism in your life and you need supernatural hope, are you willing tonight to say, going into 2020, Lord, I'm willing to try. I'm willing to try. I'm willing to believe. I'm willing to trust. I'm willing to trust again. Let that be our cry tonight. I want to think, speak, and act more like Jesus this moment than the one prior. To do that, I have to avoid this exit of compromise. To do that, I have to avoid this exit of, this exit of cynicism. And there's one more. I have to avoid this exit of disconnection. I have to avoid this exit of disconnection if I want to be more like Jesus. Folks, you and I, we live in an interesting time. We live in an interesting time. We face the 21st century paradox where we've never been more connected as a culture thanks to technology, and yet have never felt more disconnected. More than half of Americans report feeling lonely. It's so bad. Loneliness is so bad in England that the prime minister appointed a minister for loneliness in the parliament. It's serious business. Vivek Murphy the former U.S. Surgeon General called loneliness a growing health epidemic. Said social isolation, listen, it's, it's associated with a reduction in lifespan that is equal to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now, it's easy to blame it on technology. It's easy to say, well, I'm lonely or I'm disconnected because of technology. But I would say technology only reveals what's already there. If you're a narcissist by nature, social media just gives you a platform, right, to share your self-centeredness with the world. If you're a workaholic by nature, social media and technology, it just lets you work anywhere all the time. Listen, distance between humans, it's an age-old problem. Before everyone had a cell phone in, the hand, in their hand, they would build fences between their houses. But I'll say this. Because of social media and our reliance on IM, texting, emails, right, all the different types of social media means to communicate, we have what I call, what they call in the military, degraded ops when it comes to our ability to have a genuine conversation. We have degraded ops when we talk about having a genuine conversation. I read an article recently that said texting, a brilliant way to miscommunicate how you feel and misinterpret what other people mean. <laughs> I find it funny that everyone talks about the seriousness of connections and, and communication, but nobody's studying it. Nobody's trying to get better at communicating. Do you know why? I think you know why. I think you know why. I love this. You know why? Because everybody thinks they're great communicators. <laughs> they do. You know why they think they're great communicators? Because they know exactly what they mean in their heads. 
right? My friends, if we're to get back on the road to thinking, speaking, and acting like Jesus, we have to learn how to communicate. Can I have the worship team come back up, please? About to finish up. All communication, all connections begin and end with a conversation. And the best way to improve our conversation, this is, listen, it's going to be different. You're not going to expect it. The best way to improve our conversation is curiosity. Being curious reflects a genuine willingness and interest in learning something about someone else. Brian Grazer, Oscar-winning producer of movies like A Beautiful Mind, Apollo 13, and the all-time classic Splash, wrote in a recent book, Face-to-Face, The Art of Human Connection. He said he practices what are called curiosity conversations, where he seeks to learn something about someone else. He said this, what changed, and listen to his words based on our conversation tonight, what changed the direction of my relationships and increased my ability to connect with someone was to look them in the eye and signal to them that I genuinely want to learn about them and from them. And once I started doing that, everything changed. This year, when it comes to connecting, I want us to think curiosity. Think about what someone else needs. When we go into conversations with an agenda, people feel it and they shut down. Have you ever got the phone call from an old friend? I have. Haven't spoken to him in years. He starts asking me all questions about my family. We're getting along. Halfway through the conversations, he says, you still work out? I said, yes. He says, well, great. I sell supplements. How would you like to invest in my business? Right? It's only $500 a month. And I forgot everything he said before that point. Curiosity. I want to learn something about you. Our agenda could be as big when we come into a conversation as vote for me at the next election or, hey, can you help me move this weekend? We have to go into 2020 recognizing the importance of conversations and wanting to learn about other people. If you're here tonight and you're like, Steve, I hear you, I get it, but I'm going to be honest with you. If I can just be honest, I really don't care too much about other people's story. I got enough going on in my life. I got to deal with my own stuff. Then I say, you, like me, we need, if we want to think, speak, and act like Jesus, we need to find the on-ramp, and that on-ramp for us tonight, the last one, is steadfast faith. I'm sorry, selfless love. Selfless love. To show people we care, we have to be curious about them. Selfless love is putting other people before ourselves. You may have noticed that the three ways to overcome compromise, cynicism, and disconnection is faith, hope, and love. Towards the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul was talking about drawing a parallel between thinking like a child and thinking like an adult. And he, and he was saying we have to go from thinking like a child to thinking like an adult. He was talking about spiritual maturity. He was talking about growth, looking more like Jesus. And towards the end, when he says the three of these remain faith, hope, and love, he says, but the greatest of these is love. And here's why. One of the reasons. Selfless love allows us to connect with others. When we connect with others, compromise loses some of its power because we are 
in accountable relationships. We're less likely to compromise when we're in relationships with other people. Connection helps us avoid the exit of cynicism. Because when we get in connection and relations with other people, we start realizing it's not true. Not everybody is selfish. There's good people. Stand with me, please. As we go into worship, tonight I only mentioned three. I only mentioned three exits. There are many more. Maybe you have one that isn't up there. But there are a lot of exits that are designed to, to take us off track to being more like Jesus. Whatever it is tonight for you, if you can relate to one of the three I mentioned, one of the ones up there, or something else, then come up for prayer tonight. We have people on the sides, we have people in the back. If you want to, to kick off 2020 looking, thinking, speaking, and acting more like Jesus, then tonight is the night. Tonight is the time for each and every one of us to find our on-ramp and get back heading to look more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we go into worship, Lord, I ask that you get a hold of our hearts, Father. Make real to us where we are. Show us, Lord, you are our GPS. We want to find you. We do not want to be distracted. We do not want to step on any detours, Father. We want to look straight ahead, fixing our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith tonight. As we enter into worship, we open our hearts. We open our hearts for your voice, for your hand, for your touch. Minister to us, Lord, that we will leave here looking more like you than when we walked in here. Let's worship. Let's worship.